This is Language Made Difficult, a theta-marking part of the Specgram podcast. Welcome to our Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium. I'm Trey Jones, and joining me today are the rest of the Ling Nerds, Keith Slater. Great to be with you. Sherry Wells-Jensen. Hi there. And Bill Spruill. Hey. And also joining us again on the program is Pete Bleakley. Welcome, Pete. Good night, everybody. Thanks for visiting us again. So let's start off with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. Our theme today is unoriginal place names. So I have three vaguely language-related items. Two are true and one is false. Uh, you guys have to figure out which is which, and after you make your overly educated guesses, we will discuss. Sometimes cities borrow names from other places and then forget how to pronounce them. So item number one, named after the country of Ecuador and spelled the same way, this city in Oregon is named Equator. Item number two, named after the country of Russia and spelled the same way, this city in Ohio is named Rushi. Item number three, named after the country of Chile, but spelled C-H-I-L-I, this city in New York is named Chai Lai. All right, who'd like to go first? Anyone still there? <laughs> it's too hard. Okay, we have to think, I suppose, about how these words got uh, promulgated from their original sources into uh, their current use. Let's see. Ecuador becoming equator. Well, that, I suppose, is how you would pronounce equator in a stereotypical American accent. I can say things like stereotypical <laughs> <laughs> But none of us can. <laughs> so, Rusi doesn't sound much like Russia. I mean, it could potentially come from Rushki if it had actually come from Russian, but I'm not too sure on that. And Chilai, well, that does sound like how an American might mangle <laughs> chili, although, let's face it, it is one of the most self-describing place names anywhere, because it's not the warmest part of South America by any means. Mm. Yeah, gets a bit chilly down there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, the truth is, it's a case of which one of these three not-quite-right-sounding things sounds slightly less right than the others do. <laughs> I reckon it's number two. Okay, so Rushi? He's just going with Rushi. All right. Who wants to go next? I'll make a go at it. Number one, named after the country of Ecuador. It's in Oregon and it's Equator. See, the problem with that one that's making me suspicious is that any decent American dialect, once that town had been there for a while, it would be Equator. It wouldn't be equator, it would be equator. So, but it's Oregon, so it might be something weird. It depends on how much fog there is there. Is it on the coast? Is it inland? You know. <laughs> All right, the place in Ohio that spelled Russia but pronounced Rushi, I can kind of see that too, except in Ohio, I would expect it to become something like Russia. Or Rusha, Rushi is a little strange. Now, they might have originally said Rushia or Rushia. And then Chilai, I can kind of believe, but I wouldn't expect it to be in New York. I would expect it to be further south, that Chilai is like other place names like Arab. So <laughs> I guess the one I'm most suspicious of is Equator. So I'm going to pick that one as being wrong, but I don't feel confident. I never do, but I particularly don't here. <laughs> my job is done. Your job is done. I'm just offended that the entrant from my own home state of Kentucky didn't make it into the list, and that's Versailles. <laughs> that was too obvious. <laughs> well, I'm going to go with Chai Lai because nobody else did. And uh, I'd give Sherry the opportunity to team up with somebody, and Trey will win regardless. Excellent. I like that plan. Thanks. <laughs> well, okay. Chilai comes from the land of Lackawanna and Tanawanda. So I'm thinking they think that Chilai sounds nice and exotic. So I'm thinking that Chilai is fine. Besides, it's got chai in it. And don't they all drink chai in New York? I mean, isn't that a trendy, cool, hip thing to do? So I think Chilai is fine. And I think if there were a town called Russia, Ohio, folks would want to obscure that as much as possible. And so <laughs> definitely say Rushi. I'm In the Cold War, for sure. For sure. In Ohio, we'd say Rushi. I'm pretty sure of that. And everybody knows that the pronunciation of that country down south is Ecuador, not <laughs> So I think that it's number one. Okay. So I'd just like to comment on Bill, his notion of equator 
That's more Texas than Oregon. Well, it's actually what I grew up with for the line around the middle of the planet, (laughs) the equator. Right. Exactly. Trey, I would like to comment on the fact that you've now pronounced the word Oregon twice in two different ways. You clearly said Oregon the first time and Oregon just now. So I think you're responsible for all these weird pronunciations. (laughs) (laughs) It's possible. If I'm wrong about number one, that's my excuse. He threw me off with that whole Gongin thing. Oregon. When was the citation form? <laughs> and it was high tone too, wasn't it? <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> so number one is in fact the false one. <laughs> I made that one up. Wait, which one did I pick? Uh, a different one. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Though my daughter did tell me that uh, someone in her class asked uh, why there was a country called Equator on the globe at school. So someone did try. And I did see Versailles. A couple other runners up in Michigan, there is Pompeii. Oh, yes. <laughs> they pronounce the second <laughs> I. There's Beatrice in Nebraska. Arkansas City, Kansas. Kansas. Hey. Peru, Indiana. And Delhi, California. There is actually also an Arab, Alabama. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, because I did my PhD at the University of Leicester, and I'm wondering mm. if there's anywhere in America spelt L-E-I-C-E-S-T-E-R. And if so, how does it get pronounced? There is one in Massachusetts, and it's pronounced Lester. Wow, they got it right. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you might actually find a bunch of towns scattered across the U.S. spelled Mm -hmm. (laughs) L-E-S-T-E-R that might have been a gesture towards that. There's also a Lester, New York, a Lester, North Carolina, a Lester, Vermont. All spelled the traditional Uh way. Yeah. Those are all the ones I can easily find that have pronunciations. Mm. Though the one in Massachusetts wasn't too much of a surprise because they also have like Worcester and other places that are spelled Mm. in that British way. Yeah. Yeah. My first degree I did at Durham and um, I could imagine Americans mangling that as Durham. (laughs) There's a pretty big city in North Carolina called Durham and it's pronounced Durham. So Yeah. But Americans are capable of that sort of mangling. It's true. Yes. Yeah. Love it. Yes. Yes. I wouldn't be surprised if there was some little town somewhere, but yeah. I just want to make sure Trey doesn't forget to do the scores, right, Bill? We want to make sure he does that. Oh yes, that is correct. This is one of the occasions upon which scores are important, as opposed to the other occasions. I think we should downplay the score because I'm in favor of uh, everyone feels good about themselves. Well, it's interesting because this is where context matters. (laughs) My score went up and Keith's score went down and now we're in the same place. So I feel good and he feels bad. (laughs) Rotten. (laughs) Bill and Sherry both have 100% under the new scoring regime, while Keith and I and the guests have 50%. I don't think we should promulgate these scores. I was going to say the error bars on these are like 150%. So (laughs) Keith could easily go negative at any moment. (laughs) What what is one standard deviation? (laughs) You probably want to antimulgate them. (laughs) 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 Or just carry them over and transmulgate them. So I think that's all the time we have for Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics. I want to say thank you to Pete for joining us again. It was great to have you here. And we'll be back in a second after a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by Tobias Högberg and the Foundation for the Nostratic Hypothesis. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the Valhalla Institute for Totally Random Research. This holiday season, give the gift that says, I don't really know what you want, my dear linguist, but I'm trying. Because you didn't know you were supposed to take your favorite linguist to India to pay homage at the grave of Panini, you can at least treat them to the speculative grammarian essential guide to linguistics. We all want to make our loved ones happy, but let's face it, linguists are a difficult bunch. They talk funny, they ask silly questions, and they get excited about the most ridiculous things. Ooh, sociomorphophonetics. What does that even mean? You don't need to know whether your linguist is an anti-structuralist cognitivist, an anti-cognitivist functionalist, an anti-functionalist generativist, or an anti-generativist structuralist to give them a gift they will treasure for years to come. The Speculative Grammarian Essential Guide to Linguistics is the most fun a linguist can have with their clothes on, though we have to point out that while reading naked is not the unmarked condition, neither is it infelicitous. Available in both hard copy and electronic formats. See specgram.com book for more information.
Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Now it's time for some language in the news. And today we're going to discuss a recent group of articles that have come out on the topic of iconicity. Now, a lot of us know that uh, iconicity has been studied by linguists sort of for generations. And I got in on the tail end of one of these fads in the 1980s. So if you're interested in what people were discovering about iconicity back in those days, I could recommend my own MA thesis, which was entitled Iconic Features of the Syntax of Wordsworth's Poetry. But I will not recommend it because it was not good. (laughs) And I think that iconicity sort of disappeared from then until now, but now it's back. And a gaggle of psychologists got together recently and tested iconicity empirically. And we learned about this through popular presentations in the science, quote unquote, journalism that we find on the internet. But there's an actual article which appeared in PLOS One under the title, Iconicity in English and Spanish and its relation to lexical category and age of acquisition. And I think age of acquisition is not like the age of Aquarius or the Middle Ages, or it has something to do with (laughs) age of the speaker doing the acquiring of the language. Anyway, these experimenters found that people judged words to be more iconic than arbitrary. So, Ling nerds, what do you guys make of this? What do these results tell us? Is linguistics arbitrary or iconic? Is Spanish more iconic than English? Is it really true that verbs and adjectives are more iconic than nouns? Or was that a result of paying subjects 35 cents through Amazon Turk? And that got them an entire sample of people with no linguistic intuitions. What do you think? (laughs) First of all, who picks these articles for the podcast? Didn't we do this one last time? (laughs) No, last time was something completely different. Okay. But similar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have a lot of problems with the methodology of this one. Like you said, they used Amazon Mechanical Turk. And it's a quick and easy way to get data, but there's an entire literature out there about how to find people who are cheating and who are incompetent and people who are just trying to click through as fast as possible to get their 35 cents. And I don't think that these authors have read any of that because I did a very quick analysis of their raw data. And I have to say, I love the internet and the fact that people share their data, which is a terrible idea. It shows that there were a number of users who graded everything a five or almost everything a five, just so they could get paid quickly, I think. Because nobody's going to think that every single word is maximally iconic. Wait a minute. You could just mention the methodology. Well, I'll do it. So they asked people to rate things from negative five to plus five and negative five was totally not iconic and plus five was totally iconic and zero was what? Neutral. Neutral. Yeah. (laughs) Neither iconic nor arbitrary. Right. Yeah. And they tried to describe it as whether or not you'd be able to guess the meaning from just hearing the word. Yeah, that was one of the ways they explained it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, on the negative five to five scale, they had another (laughs) one where they they wanted you to give a number from zero to 100 of the percent likelihood that an alien would be able to guess the meaning of a word. Nanu, nanu. Exactly. It sort of depends on how bright an alien is, really. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So what does Gavagai mean? I think 11 is too many fine shades of iconicity for the linguistically naive raters to possibly separate. Hmm. So they should have just done one and negative one or what? I mean, they needed some gradation. Uh, I would say maybe negative two to positive two or one to five or something. Yeah. Kind of go like a little bit or a lot positive or negative. Or just give a multiple choice and have them try to guess what it meant. That's what I was thinking is that what you really should do instead of having people try to guess whether or not someone could predict it, have them actually do the prediction. Because there's a lot of evidence that when people are saying, how good would I be at this, that (laughs) it's... It becomes unmoored from reality fairly quickly. Yeah. Well, it's also true if they're clicking through negative five. Well, I suppose they just clicked it, right? You don't have to type in the number because I was thinking, that's two keystrokes, man. So no way. (laughs) It was a click. (laughs) They informed the participants that some words are iconic and other words are not iconic. And then they had them rate a whole bunch of words, right? Mm. And the overall result they got was that the average was 0.75. So of the total vocabulary that they had their total population rate, it turned out to be slightly more iconic than not iconic, which to me is not surprising since we just told you that some words are iconic. Of course, you're going to go looking for the result you were just told you were supposed to get, right? Yeah. And remember, that's 0.75 out of a scale from zero to five for positive iconicity. So it's not like 0.75 out of one or something. Oh, right. No, it's a 0.75 on the scale from minus five to plus five, isn't it? Right, right. Yeah. So it's positively iconic above zero. Yeah. 
it's above zero, which meant positively iconic. But since we just told you that we're testing for iconicity, even if you weren't just clicking fives all the way down to get paid quicker, I would still expect a bias in that direction. Also, given that people are not generally good at introspecting and, and how well would I be able to guess what the word table means when I say table out loud to myself, you know, mm-hmm. I think what they actually proved is that some words have fairly specific meanings and people think of those <laughs> meanings when they hear those words. Okay, but then I got a question. All right. They did order lexical categories in terms of how iconic they were judged to be. So they came out in this order, onomatopoeia, interjection, adjective, verb, noun, function words. What do we make of that? I honestly think that fits my theory. So obviously onomatopoeia is very iconic and interjections probably aren't, but they really don't have any other meaning than the emotion you sort of attach to them. But adjectives, I mean, if you think of the word furry, you don't have a specific furry thing in mind, right? So it's, it's just sort of this notion of furriness that's easily applied to anything. And then verbs typically are more action-oriented, but then you get into the nouns like a table. And then people couldn't even tell you what most function words mean. Mm-hmm. They just know how to use them. So I think there's a specificness of meaning that goes along that from adjectives down to function words. I wonder if it's not specificness, but rather like they have more affect, you know? Mm. So adjectives have more feeling to them because they're often used to give quality judgments, right? That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. That's a, like, uh, lugubrious. Yeah, like lugubrious. Like lugubrious. <laughs> Promulgate. No. Wait, that's not an adjective. <laughs> Promulgatorious. Promulgative. <laughs> yeah, uh, yes. So I'm assuming they did a word frequency uh, thing. They did that too. I forget what they said about it. Okay, because it would be really clear to me that you'd feel like you know these more frequent words better, except, of course, for the function words, which nobody knows what they are. I can't remember if they did frequency, but they did test for age of acquisition. So they looked at some big database for when children acquire words, and they found that the words that are acquired earlier, that was a strong predictor of iconicity. That kind of goes along with the interjections, because kids learn to curse before they learn almost anything. (laughs) That's because they hear a lot of it. Put that down. <laughs> Did they have exclamation points on the interjections? I forget, because <laughs> that would be kind of a giveaway. <laughs> there are no exclamation points in the data. I did not look at the data, I admit. I don't trust anyone that doesn't eat their own data as soon as they're done with it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just like to say, though, for the good of the order, that Specam is really missing a pretty good money-making opportunity. So average, you pay $1,445, says Wikipedia, to publish an article in Postal. Whenever Keith publishes in Specam, we only charge him about 35 bucks. So I think that we're really missing our calling here. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean you only charging me 35 bucks? It was 50 last time. <laughs> Does this have something to do with that contractual clause he called for? <laughs> oh, sorry, you guys. Um, yeah. So... No, the 50 is the percentage of Lies Damn Lies Linguistics he's got correct since we rebooted. But plus one doesn't charge, do they? Yeah. Yeah. Do they? Uh, Wait a minute. They charge oh, the researcher money to print in plus one? Yeah. Yes. Well, that explains why it's all physicists and no linguists. Yeah, that's right. Linguists yeah. don't have any money. These are psychologists and they're only assistant professors, which makes me feel bad about charging them that much money. Mm. But the question I have is, why are there not more articles published by bankers? Maybe <laughs> <laughs> they, don't, they don't have to, right? Are bankers going to try to get tenure? What would be the advantage to a banker of... I think they just try to buy the university. There's... <laughs> <laughs> Start their own. <laughs> or maybe they know better than to try that. <laughs> Given that these are assistant professors, maybe we should think of a bunch of really nice things to say about the articles just so those guys can go on and keep their jobs and then publish real stuff later. <laughs> That's the most damning thing you've said so far. <laughs> publish real stuff later. <laughs> that was not the most ringing endorsement that we've heard. Well, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. So it's hard for me to generate a lot of enthusiasm once I saw that it has an NSF credit on the article, that they got some money from NSF to do something. It's probably um, to pay for the mechanical turk. Funding by NSF. Did NSF pay for the publication fund, too? Because if NSF will pay for me to publish in Plus One, maybe I ought to get right on that because I'd like a promotion. And this could be the kind of thing where they publish once to get the research paradigm sort of launched and then continually refine the methodology because they got room to refine it. (laughs) (laughs) It's important when you design your original methodology to build in some future refinements. <laughs> yeah, you need like an academic product arc. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, 
at least certain parts of your methodology should have some planned obsolescence built in. <laughs> we should also point out that in the likely event that they're fans of the podcast, that they're welcome to be guest speakers and absolutely rake any of our articles over the calls. Absolutely. I never use my real name. <laughs> I eat my data. <laughs> <laughs> Sherry, are you sure we should be nice to these people? Because one of the lead authors called this the nail in the coffin for the theory that languages are essentially arbitrary. Was that one of the authors? Yeah. I thought that was some unbiased. No. Oh, that's too bad because it's not quite the nail. (laughs) I'm trying to think what it is. It's not the screw or the hammer. (laughs) Well, first of all, he messed up the saying. It's the last nail in the coffin. No, any nail is fine. The nail in the coffin. Or another fine. nail. It doesn't have to be the last nail in the coffin. Well, if you're going to say on. the nail, if it's going to be the nail, the nail has to be the last nail. No, it, it only takes another time. nail. It's like a Clint Eastwood movie. Get three coffins ready. You know, uh, yeah, it doesn't need to be the last nail. Just any old nail in the coffin is fine. Well, there's no nails. There's no coffin. <laughs> languages are still mostly arbitrary. Yep. Many <laughs> linguists are trained to believe that languages are arbitrary, we're told. Like a rat pushing a lever. that's what skinner told us and we're sticking by it we've been conditioned to believe that (sighs) so you know i've studied many languages and never really gotten very good at any of them except maybe english you know spanish french a little german your english isn't very good either yeah but then i tried to study swahili just sort of on a lark and i will tell you language is completely arbitrary (laughs) <laughs> when you move outside of the language family that you know any, it's just, there's nothing. I can't remember a single word because it was just completely was unrelated to anything. Every single word was completely unrelated to anything in any oh. of the languages that I knew. So I don't know if maybe they shared an R or an N or something that I didn't notice. Language is arbitrary. Oh, so this is interesting. So one of the things these people probably forgot to control for, and I don't remember seeing it in the methodology, was whether a particular word had cognate words in other languages that the subjects knew, because that would make it seem even more strongly to sound like what it means, right? Hmm. What's the demographic for Mechanical Turk? Because if it's mainly an American audience, we can largely discount them knowing any other languages. They only took people from the U.S. who mm-hmm. listed English or Spanish as their native language. Okay, but if they got some people speaking Spanish as their native language, at least there's some variety. Well, no, that was for the Spanish. They did it for English and Spanish. Oh, so, oh. But curiously, they paid the English speakers 35 cents and the Spanish speakers $2. Yeah, yeah. There were fewer of them, and they needed to get data fast, they said. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I think it's unfair. I got to log off now because I think I can speak pretty decent Spanish, and I got to get on Mechanical Turk right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, based on the logic behind this, if you can speak Sumerian or (laughs) Bella Kula, you can probably get like $8,000 per response. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, what you can do is sell your language to Paramount Pictures, and uh, they'll use it to make movies. Only you're, if they can copyright it, though. So. You're sitting pretty. Yeah, I was going to say, they don't like natural languages anymore. That's true. They like to be able to copyright. I haven't followed this lawsuit about the uh, Star Trek fan movie that was being sued, and part of the thing was that Paramount, right, says they own Klingon. Yeah. Right. I think everyone's developing the vocabulary to use in the court case. Mm, that'll take a while yeah there was klingon in the brief yes the brief was very entertaining yeah okay well it sounds like we've pretty much solved all the problems with iconicity in english and spanish and its relation to lexical category and age of acquisition so maybe we'll put that article to rest and move on with the next important part of our podcast which would be another word from our sponsors language made difficult is brought to you by the fricatives of Northwestern Mandarin Chinese. Northwestern Mandarin Chinese. We've got a whole lot of fricatives, but Tibetan has even more. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the Society for the Acceptance of Spoken French as a Polysynthetic Language. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the fantastical devices of Pete the Mad Scientist. Language Made Difficult presenteras av Tobias Högberg. Varsågoda. What? Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Now it's time for a segment we're calling Innovation or Abomination. 
Linguists know that languages change, and yesterday's error can easily become tomorrow's standard. Such changes can be interesting when they happened to your language a long time ago. They can be exciting when you can see them happening in a language you study but don't speak. They can be horrifying when they are happening to your language right now. So let's try to take a step back from the creeping horror of change to try to look dispassionately at a small number of ongoing changes in English that are well attested in informal writing on the internet. Let's discuss why we think each is happening and whether they are interesting, exciting, or horrifying. So Wait a minute, you're planning to use evidence from the internet for this discussion? Yes. With a straight face? Well, it's a naturalistic corpus. <laughs> that was a really good straight face voice, too. It's uncontrolled. But we're, all right, all right, all right, go ahead. But it's informal, it's things that, well, hopefully people wouldn't use this kind of language in formal writing. <laughs> I can't even. Yeah. <laughs> so Jeopardy style, would you like to hear the joke that goes with that punchline? Teenage girl tried to count. All she could say was one, three, five, seven, nine. Teacher <laughs> asked her why. I can't even. Yep. So to ease us into this discussion, let's start with mere orthography. There are many people out on the internet who spell should've, would've, and could've. Instead of an apostrophe V-E, they spell it with space O-F. Should. Of. Yep. Yep. There's actually an argument. I don't remember who wrote it, but there's an argument that for some speakers, of has been (laughs) reanalyzed as a complementizer. Interesting. The whole unit, should've, or just the of? No, the of. of. That sort of model of grammar that should is followed by a verb phrase that has a complementizer in front of it, and the complementizer is of. That's brilliant. I like it. Interesting. I wish I'd thought of it. I need to go look up who wrote it, but I saw a reference to it and immediately thought it was fun. Yeah. That's an innovation, not an abomination. Yeah. All right. (laughs) But only if you interpret of as a complementizer. Right. If you interpret it as a preposition, then it's making the polar ice caps melt. (laughs) (laughs) I think people who would try to spell it with an OF don't know the difference between a complementizer and a preposition, is my guess. They put it in the same sort of category as the preposition is. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I did not make that up. (laughs) I I know that's why it's funny. It's all just going to go down to uh anyway, eventually, and they'll put the should space or a, and then we can all just... I mean, it's already uh for me anyway. I should have gone. And spelling it that way is acceptable, or at least more acceptable in informal writing, just with the a attached right now with a space. So should have. It would be interesting to try writing it with a space and see if people could read it. Because I don't think I've ever seen it written that way, but could. Oh, now I'm tempted to look. Since it's a complementizer. That'd be a little harder to search for because it's perfectly reasonable for a to come after should in a sentence that's grammatical in standard English, right? Should a person do this, right? Don't you have a tagged corpus? I do not. Come on. It's an informal, naturalistic corpus. That's what the internet needs. It needs some tagging. (laughs) Get right on that. (laughs) I know two assistant professors of psychology that might be looking for work. (laughs) That was super mean. I'm sorry. That was way meaner than I meant to be. (laughs) I was wondering, is it wrong that I like to use math to be mean to people? I mean, (laughs) I thought that's why math was invented. Probably. (laughs) I thought it was to confuse people. Just the weak. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering, so if shoulda expands, you know, is should have, right? Or should of. Mm -hmm. Can we uncontract kinda to kind have instead of kind of and sorta to sort have? I want that to happen. (laughs) Oh, that would be neat. And Trey can find that for you. (laughs) Get on that tagged internet corpus, please, and find that for me. And then we can try to figure out if there's a difference between when it's criticized as apostrophe V-E versus a separate word. So there are instances of kind apostrophe V-E on the internet. Nice! I feel so happy! Yeah, well, how many instances? 195,000. They're not the ones I just typed in then, I guess. Who promulgates this stuff on the internet? (laughs) All it would take was a couple of bots, and there'd be a lot more. (laughs) Just saying. Release the bots. Go. There's a whole new frontier of how to make your papers work. (laughs) And sort of, also spelled with apostrophe V-E, is also out on the internet. There's 100,000 of those. Wow. And both are in Wiktionary, my personal favorite dictionary, as misspellings of the OF versions. Can you find the one person that's doing shallow? (laughs) (laughs) well if i had a second computer i'd be typing that in right now (laughs) shallow 
All right, Trey, you got some other examples. You haven't shocked us yet. Okay, so that wasn't too bad. Bill kind of saved that one by making it extremely interesting. (laughs) One that I've noticed that's been going on, especially among younger speakers, is the loss of the mass and count noun distinction. And it seemed to have started with less and fewer, but then it spread to other distinctions. Mm -hmm. I was able to find some examples. Uh, I just picked a random count noun. I use uh, people, dogs, and cities to come up with these. So people have said on the internet, I think less people are playing. And areas where there are less dogs. It's not too bad. It sounds a little wrong, but... Sounds okay to me. Really? Okay. Well, then we have amount and number. Mm -hmm. So the amount of dogs abandoned during the summer. We just got a huge amount of dogs and an unreasonable amount of people. Still okay, Keith? It's less okay, but, um, you know, I couldn't have told you why it's not okay. I would have felt like, hmm, that's probably not the right word, but I wouldn't have been able to say why. Okay. So it's almost okay. All right. Wow. Some people actually are also losing the distinction with much and many. Yeah. Mm. Since so much people liked my tattoo, how much cities are you building? That's not okay. (laughs) (laughs) And why is there so much people posting butt pics on Twitter? Now, that could be sort of referring to the size of the people. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's just like the scene in Casablanca where the German tourists say, how much watch? Such much. (laughs) I have been reading student papers, and the number amount distinction is pretty much gone. Mm Mm-hmm. As in just totally gone. I have seen some of the many much distinction being dropped. It's gone to completion for fewer versus less and probably did a generation ago, at least. Mm-hmm. The number versus amount, who knows, it may have been doing that for the past 80 years, but I noticed it in the past 20. So that's the part that's real. Um, <laughs> you know, recency effect for the win. Right. The much and many seems pretty new. Yeah. yeah, I would think. I've only noticed the amount number in the last two or three years, I think. Not just like once or twice, but you're only seeing it regularly. Yeah. And mostly reading comments on the internet. And I remember I was thinking, you know, this less fewer. And I was thinking, well, the next thing, you know, you could lose the amount number distinction. And then there it was. I'm like, they can't do much and many, can they? And then they can. And it's horrifying to me. <laughs> it's an abomination. It kind of is for me, but it's actually really cool. I mean, that's one of the things I like about these is that it's cool to see this sort of natural process happening in language. And at the same time, as a linguist, you're going, oh, that is so cool. And then as an English speaker, you're like, oh, my God, that is so wrong. I would never accept that on a paper. That's true. What I tell my kids is that it doesn't matter whether you think this is grammatical or whether in 50 years you'll be right. It's whether or not the people who want to hire you when they read your resume, how they feel about it. And they're all my age. So you need to do better. And they're considerably stuffier than you are. Yeah, exactly. I have a sort of natural tendency to prefer strict typing. So it's like, but that noun is inherently count. That noun is inherently mass. You know, it's like, don't go changing your variables on me like that. (laughs) I stop and do the linguist maneuver where it's like, okay, the hand with the red pen is diving in to attack. Write something supportive and then suggest the change. (laughs) (laughs) and use a green pen (laughs) right or purple well we always tell our esl students right as well listen to what people around you say that's a whole world of language learning just right out there for you to just go dive into and then we teach this less fewer thing and they come back and they say nah nobody says that oh well okay put this in the TOEFL box you pull this out when you need to take the TOEFL yep and the rest of the time, you could pretend like, okay, all right, fine, let it go. We have other fish to fry. <laughs> I have a friend in France whose English is very good, and we were discussing this a bit, and I told him that people have stopped making this distinction in many cases, and he was very upset about this. He's like, that sounds wrong, <laughs> and I worked really hard to learn this. <laughs> <laughs> right. I put so much energy into that. <laughs> yeah, I suppose like if Chinese and Japanese gave up all those counters, then the fact that I'd bothered to learn them, I'd be sad if they gave them up. Part of our reactions are bound into a kind of sunk cost fallacy or sunk cost accurate perception or whatever you call it. I mean, it depends on how you want to think about how you're reacting. But there's one set of factors that involve how easy is it to learn to do that because then we judge something badly. If it's easy and someone doesn't do it, we sort of judge it more harshly, right? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, we also judge it more harshly if it's really complicated and we had to put in a lot of work to learn it. Mm -hmm. Because then if we let it slide past, 
we're having to admit at some level it wasn't really that important and we put all that time in and then that time was wasted. Yeah. That's how I feel about the lie-lay distinction. It's like, eh, it's not that important. <laughs> Is there a distinction between that? Because like, yeah. Yeah, one means to lay down and be prone and the other one means to tell an untruth. Okay, I can accept that. To one lie down and be Lay down prone. and one means to lie down. Yeah. It's... No. Yeah. <laughs> and one that's sort of recent, as far as I can tell, is L-E-A-D for both the present and past tense of the verb. I think people still pronounce oh, yeah. it lead and led. Right. But the spelling distinction is disappearing. The, mm -hmm. the LED form is kind of disappearing from the internet. You know, that is one of those things that I just cannot do right. I know the right answer, but I just, when I'm typing, it comes out the other way. Yeah, yeah I'm the so. same way. I do it wrong just about every time. Yeah. Yeah. To the point that I've conditioned myself, and now I'm not sure what the right answer is. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, let's see. Was that? That's wrong again, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Keith must not feel too terribly bad about this since he admitted to being about halfway along. Still not horrifying. Which one? What are we on? The general loss of mass count distinction. Yeah. Right. The much one was a problem, but right, right. yeah, basically we're all headed down that path. Let's just be entertained. <laughs> Let's be very much entertained. Drive <laughs> the nail in the coffin of that. <laughs> <laughs> but you wouldn't say how many entertained you were. So <laughs> I would. Okay. We Ugh. have many entertained wow. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I got one more then. So I guess that was not too abominable. So this is the loss of preterite and irregular past participle distinction. So, of course, for regular verbs, the preterite and past participle are the same, but some speakers are leveling the distinction in irregular verbs. And I first noticed this change a while back, and it seemed to start in verbs that had minimal differences, like uh, just a final N or a vowel change. So like broke and broken or ran or run or drank and drunk. But then as with the mass count distinction, I was sort of predicting, would I see some of these other ones that seem more egregious? And then they started showing up. So let me read you a few examples that, for me at least, get increasingly horrific. I was wondering if anyone has ran the math on this. Mm -hmm. That's nice estimates, has ran. I like that. Okay. And then somebody quoted an error as, your PC has ran into a problem and needs to restart. Mm -hmm. Okay. Who has drank the Kool-Aid? Who has drank the Kool-Aid? Yep. He has ate our food and drank our alcohol. <laughs> what is the weirdest thing your pet has ate? All right. I'm not liking has ate. That's bothering me. <laughs> I'm not liking any of these. I understand has drank, I guess, but I like the assonance. But has a, ate. A lot of these are very common in some regions and not others. Right. 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 Some of them sounded like old people's dialects, some regional dialects, but some of them don't. Has ran and has went are very common in Michigan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, you're stealing my thunder there. Oh, sorry. That's okay. But how about this? Pokemon Go has became a chore. Ooh. And that quote has became a meme. Mm -hmm. No. Mm -mm. The doppelganger has saw her. Has saw. Yep. Wow. That's with the buzz saw or with the radial arm saw or what? <laughs> no, no, that's sawn if it's... Oh, has sawn her. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> if anyone has saw anything similar. That could be hypercorrection hmm. by people that say, I seen that, you know, you seen as past tense. Right, right. Which is also a leveling. It's just the other direction. Mm -hmm. All right. He wishes he has knew me sooner. Ooh, <laughs> has knew me sooner. Has knew. He has knew the golden chance has come. Awesome. <laughs> and then Bill alluded to has went. I believe he has went to jail. The rate has went down. And then the one that got me the most, he has did more than his share. <laughs> Ooh, that's cool. I like that one. Has did. And he has did a lot. What do you guys think? Innovation? Abomination. Uh -oh. Continuance of extremely long-term trend. <laughs> Look at a table of irregular verbs in Old English. We used to have a ton more. True. Yeah, we used to have a whole bunch of classes, too. Yeah. Right. It's just the same old, same old English decaying and decaying and decaying. <laughs> <laughs> okay, has anyone else heard Sloan? He has Sloan down. Yeah, sure. That's perfectly fine, isn't it? No? Yeah. Because I feel like if you let me have has Sloan, then I can let 
them have has eight because I like has Sloan. There's no problem with trying to nudge things along a little by making more verbs irregular just to try to sort of. Again, there's a lot you can do with bots. <laughs> <laughs> the question I have is, so you collected these examples off of the internet, right? Yep. How do you know that the data was actually there before you Googled it? How do you know it didn't come into being because you queried it? Uh, because I know how computers work. <laughs> it's possible that before the question was asked, the answer wasn't there. Ooh, creepy. Don't be creepy, Keith. I don't think so. <laughs> what if 50% of the internet is generated by an AI as you interact with it? As you, yeah, it, it's, it it's looks at your query and generates a page to match. Quit it. It's late. <laughs> it's a lot of pages. Yeah. And 959 of them on Reddit have has flu instead of has flown. Yeah, but well, you know what? Reddit, though, Reddit doesn't count. Reddit does count. You haven't looked at those pages. It just generated a number. It's going to generate the pages when you go to look at them. It's really creepy. <laughs> okay, Trey, find me has Sloan because I believe in has Sloan a lot. I think has Sloan is pretty. No, no, Sloan. Sloan. Sloan down. It's going oh, to be has Sloan down, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't that mean to hurts. hurt you. <laughs> I didn't mean to cause damage. I just you it's know. there. It's there. Time has slowed down. Yeah. Earth has slowed down. Well, how about slowed up? See if we can. <laughs> well, Sloan yeah. itself four thousand nine hundred and thirty results. Just quickly on Google, it's not like S L O W N is going to occur by itself, except as that probably. Sloan, Sloan, Sloan. I'm typing Sloan, Sloan, Sloan. Hmm. Yeah, I've got has slowed up too. Nice. She was she was a stakes competitor in her younger days and has slowed up in her racing career. <laughs> I definitely would use slow up. So that doesn't yeah, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, right. That's Texan. Yeah. Or something. Or something. Yeah. It's Southern, maybe. Somebody needs to figure out a context where you can say it done slown over. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Why'd you leave that by the side of the road? It done slown over. <laughs> One of the things that I've particularly noticed about the has went is I explained to students that they need to change it to has gone in formal writing, right? Just it's mm -hmm. no big deal, but go through and change those. And the degree to which it seems almost impossible for them to notice it is interesting. If it's that kind of thing, you would expect that it should be fairly easy to go through a text and say, okay, Every time you see the word went, see if there's a form of have upstream of it, right? Mm -hmm. And they can look at pages and be unable to do that. Mm -hmm. They can. And I just find the phenomenon interesting. It's sort of like, yeah, this is something you don't normally consciously pay a lot of attention to, right? Mm -hmm. But when your attention has been drawn to it, like someone's telling you, let's do this, let's go over mm -hmm. this, mm -hmm. the inability to see it is kind of. I don't know of any better evidence that something is totally normal to a dialect than that you can't see it. <laughs> that right. you can't get it into the conscious part of your head to work with it. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Back with slown over still, I think you can get that as a combination of moan over and slowed up, which I think can happen to people. I did Google slown over and it seems to be a pretty common phrase in certain kinds of poetry. Poetry. Mm. I'm not really sure what it means. Well, if it's most modern poetry, you don't have to have a meaning for it. So A lot of it's older, from 1904. In the evening he returns, he lies down at the foot of my couch. He tells me what he has seen, the seas he has slown over with their fishes and their ships. Hmm. I wonder if that's, you know how a ship can slew to the side? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it's a different verb that it's from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because they can certainly slew over. Right. But trying to read it as slow just didn't work. Yeah. So I don't have a really strong grasp of construction grammar, and I don't know whether I want to think it's true or not, but this kind of thing makes me think that it's not true for some people. Because like the phrases, has gone, have gone, has done, have done, those are like fixed phrases. I just don't see how you can put has and went together. Well, keep in mind that some of these forms, especially ones that are in regional dialects, in England... Different forms of the participles developed in different places, or rather the old English system collapsed differently in different places. Mm -hmm. A lot of this went through a period where the phrases weren't as fixed because word order wasn't as fixed. Does that make any sense? It does, except if I wasn't living through it, I might buy that. But I predicted this, 
and have been looking for it and then started finding it after I predicted it because there were the more subtle differences Mm -hmm. like broken and broke and drank and drunk. And another thing I noticed when I first started noticing it is often there would be some other material between the have and the participle. Yeah. Yeah. The discontinuity made it more likely. I haven't done any research to try to find, you know, there are some available older corpora of things, but I had not noticed it with the regularized participle right next to the auxiliary verb. Mm -hmm. Just, I hadn't noticed that before, but I was looking for it and sort of expecting it to come. Mm -hmm. And then I found it. Mm. Well, where I grew up, people said head drank. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't say head went, but they said head drank. Right. And that one, again, is in that category of not such a big change. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that some of these things you're encountering may have been around easily for equally as long. I agree for things like drank drunk and ran run and broken broken, but has went is so jarring to me. (laughs) Hmm. I got used to it already just during this discussion. (laughs) (laughs) So then you have to ask Keith's question, unfortunately, which is you did ask the question and then go look. So were those data there before you went looking for them? And I'm really sorry I said that because it's creepy. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true, though. (laughs) I just found a reference from 1997, so this has went too far. Hmm. And this is on a news group, alt.music.garthbrooks, so that actually <laughs> kind of goes together. Okay, so we can blame Garth Brooks for this then. Not necessarily. Okay, I just searched for the sequence has went in the corpus of historical American English. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting two hits from 1830. One hit from 1880, six from 1900, eyeballing it. The numbers are low enough to where I couldn't say there's a trend by any means, but it looks like it's appearing a good bit in fiction. And it's like I just pulled out some, and one of them is the verses ain't been around since, and probably he has went up to the front or somewheres. So it's being used in representations of quote, rural, unquote, English, etc., which I think it's just regional dialect. Yeah. All of those forms, the ones that are native to your region sound fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Well, since I made a conscious effort to step away from my dialect, so they all sound wrong. Well, that Mm. hurts. Yeah. Well, that was unfortunate because all the people who talk like me on TV were stupid. So I stopped talking like that. I did a quick search on the Google Ngram viewer, and I've got references from 1839, 1837. So, Well, I think that might be good enough for Plus One. I say you publish. <laughs> yeah. What's my thesis, or do I need one? We'll take up a collection for you so you can publish in <laughs> Plus One. <laughs> It'll be your birthday present. Hmm. Real superstition has went among the gentry. Wow. 1839. I do think it's becoming more more widespread, Bill. Yeah, oh, that, that's what it does. That's yeah. what happened to a bunch of our irregular verbs. We don't say had wrought anymore. We say had worked. Those mean two different things. <laughs> well, they do now. They do now, yeah. Mm. You are correct. One of the standard things with Old English is almost all the verbs that are irregular in modern English were in Old English, but a bunch of other ones were too. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Those largely decreased over the years through leveling. The subjunctive form leveled itself completely away. <laughs> if that were true. <laughs> There'd be no Sloan. I need Sloan to come back. Really, it should be head sloat with a G-H, right? S-L-O-U-G-H-T. I think it should be sloth. Head sloth. Oh, but that's the T-H noun suffix. <laughs> yeah, but it would fit in with the creature, the sloth. All right, Bill, you've gone and made the horror less horrifying. You must be fun at Halloween. He just historicized it. (laughs) I think if it really bothers you, the way to deal with this is just to try to add more irregular verbs. Again, don't underestimate bots. (laughs) (laughs) Sloan, Sloan, typey type, Sloan, Sloan. Find a change that you like, get bots to promulgate it out on the internet. Exactly. Then uh, have some linguists do some informal naturalistic corpus work <laughs> and discover it. Hmm. <laughs> Proleptic research. <laughs> or maybe that's pro search, not research. Hmm. Pre search. All right. That's all the time we have for Language Made Difficult. Join us next time when we look at the use of bound stress in the speech of dominatrices. What? Wow. <laughs> Wow. (laughs) Keith not get it?
I didn't get it. I said what? So bound stress. Okay. Bondage and domination. Dominatrix. Somebody pay to tie you up. Oh, okay. All right. Do things Sorry. to you. Then you're bound. Yeah. Bound and gagged. So we don't have gag stress. Okay. Okay. I think all he really deserves for that is a heartfelt wow. <laughs> shampoo. Wow. I think you just said shampoo. <laughs> yeah, pretty close. You know, there's really something absolutely non-arbitrary about Mandarin. It's that every word that I really want to know has at least two impossible fricatives in it. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I have three particular ones for us to discuss. I didn't tell you what they were, so I could make you feel bad when I read you some examples. All right, you want cries of indignation then. Well, that's what I got from my wife and daughter when I read them some of the examples. Well, we're unmovable. Uh-huh. We're strong people. Okay. I am bracing myself for onboarding. <laughs> no, no, no. We'll see. We'll see. Here we go. Sure. I still think the best uh, movie with a linguist in it is Stargate. The original, not the TV show. Oh, yeah. the All right. James Spader. This is from Egyptian, but it's been here for 2,000 years. It's going to take me at least an hour to extrapolate the entire language. Okay. Think <laughs> of how much other stuff they get wrong in the movies. I know. I will allow for like time compression and things like that. Yeah. They just sort of said, oh, oh, the vowels are different. I got it. Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> sure. That's how I read Portuguese. Sure. And and frankly, for Egyptian, you would expect the vowels to be what would change. I mean, those Semitic languages, those consonants are Mm -hmm. a lot more stable. Oh, the consonants are stable. Good point. Right. you got to be a super smart linguist to be in a movie, right? I mean, that's the rule, isn't it? Right. (laughs) It's not about the 17 other linguists who fell through the portal and then got eaten. (laughs) (laughs) They all insisted on binary branching, and it prevented (laughs) them from working with the language. (laughs) It's okay when you're watching a movie for something to be, you know, a one in a million chance because that's the person you would tell the story about. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. not that's not strange at all. Yeah. Although this sort of suggests there would be room for the science fiction movie where the starship linguist keeps making mistakes and that's actually driving the plot. Mm. <laughs> like apparently we're now at war with this species, but we can't figure out why. You know, and then you find out five episodes later it was because Doofus declared war on them while he was trying to say, would you like a bagel or something? <laughs> right. I'm pretty sure Douglas Adams had that, didn't he? There is a, va- there is a vast amount, vast number. <laughs> much. There much. is mega buku stuff <laughs> that originally shows up in Douglas Adams. Right. <laughs> True. I wonder if Douglas Adams would blame a linguist or just have mistranslation. <laughs> Hmm. Oh, it'd be a problem with the Babel fish, mm-hmm. I think. Mine's not working because it sounded like you said Babel fish. Yeah, Babel fish. Babel fish. Oh, no, that's not right. Okay, whatever. <laughs> it's not my fault if he used the wrong name. Wow, did I agree to that? That sounds awesome. No, I just assigned you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, good. Congratulations. Well, what the hell I was thinking. So it's good to know that I wasn't even thinking about it. <laughs> we find it's best when making important life decisions not to involve the person. <laughs> Sometimes we don't tell them until after it's too late. (laughs) That's good advice for parenting and teaching. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, Michigan does not have early voting, unfortunately. Did you say girly voting? It did sound like that. (laughs) (laughs) Only manly voting or what? (laughs) Oh, okay. No, early voting. (laughs) I remember some uh, statisticians who drank too much. They were in an error bar. (laughs) (laughs) let's don't start this again (laughs) it was too painful last time it was mean (sighs) (sighs) i I don't know if i can go on (laughs) (laughs) please don't so the result that they got was uh let's see i wrote the number down somewhere if you're checking something on plus one you might as well counter check with wikipedia right thanks to they're not here no fun talking about him if he's not going to, you know, hear us. 